Welcome to Season 1, Episode 4 of Operator Revolution, the podcast about operations. I am Jason Carvello, founder of Toronto-based OperatingAcademy.com. And I'm Clint Overton from the Overton Group in St. Louis, Missouri. And we are your hosts. In today's episode, we're going to dig deeper into an operational question everyone is asking. How does the recent banking crisis and Fed rate hikes impact businesses in the short term? Over the last two weeks, recent banking failures surprised many and left venture investors and entrepreneurs in a difficult and increasing complex situation. These failures are indicative of a broader, challenging economic environment that has seen record interest rate increases to fight persistent inflation. Entrepreneurs need to focus on what happens next and how to fortify their companies in an unpredictable environment. The potential impacts of the failures and the strategies they should employ to manage capital as access to new funding becomes increasingly tight. So Clint, what was your reaction to the run on the bank, so to say? Well, there's there's kind of, there's a couple of topics here that I think are important. I think one is the speed at which we saw the reaction in the marketplace. And I think certainly one of the things that is very evident to us as we think about how we operate as a society now is news travels fast. And as a result of news, we have a tendency for any type of fear to be escalated in a very, very short period of time. I think that certainly primed some of what we saw in the bank runs here a couple of weeks back. But I think the other kind of understated topic here is that as we came out of the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, is there was a significant amount of regulation and focus on the large banks and understandably so, Um, as a result of what led up to the financial crisis. And the the outcome of that was um, a lot of regulation, policy changes, processes that were put in place in order to evaluate potential stress on the banks. And as we came out of that, you saw some other banks step in over the last 15 years or so that have grown pretty substantially. And despite the words of the chairman in last week's meeting, one of the things is very clear is that some of these um, smaller banks, relatively smaller compared to your JP Morgan's Bank of America's um, city banks of the world, was that the same regulatory tightening in policies and oversight was not in place for those banks. And so one of the things I think that that this bank run highlighted was the overall lack of consistency in terms of oversight and regulation for those banks. But in addition to that, I think what it highlighted for us as well is one of the overwhelming problems that we have in not only the banking industry, but I think more generally in business is that everyone wants to get the most out of putting forth the least. And I think that one of the things that this highlights is that when there are significant changes and shifts, that the banks were not prepared for that because they were still writing kind of the tidal wave of success and the economic conditions that came out of the pandemic. And while it seemed fairly obvious, if if you were paying attention to the economic policy changes that the Fed was putting into place, the rapid speed at which they were making interest rate hikes really put these banks in a very, very difficult position because they had over leveraged themselves in a way that I think in hindsight was a lack of poor policy and controls that they had within their banking institutions. Silicon Valley Bank collapsed after widespread client withdrawals in what would become the second biggest bank failure in U.S. history. And 
for those that don't know who Silicon Valley Bank is, Silicon Valley Bank is a 40-year-old commercial bank um, that was an important lender to the tech and venture capital sector. It was estimated that half of U.S. venture-backed startups were customers of that bank. When that happened, when Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, uh, I had to, being an investor in some startups over the years, um, actually was not prepared for the collapse. The collapse itself took place within a period of almost 24 hours. Um, on March 8th, Moody's downgraded SVB to an outlook of negative. On March 9th, SVB announced initially to raise $2.25 million in fresh capital by selling new shares. They failed. Peter Thiel's Founders Fund, among others, advised companies to pull their funds out from SVB. And then as we moved into March 10th, uh, media coverage ramped up and Silicon Valley's share price, Silicon Valley Bank's share price went from 268 uh, to 106. Trading was halted at 106 on March 10th. At that period of time, um, founders, operators, CEOs were scrambling to try and figure out what to do. Investors, myself, were scrambling to try and figure out what to do uh, because we, no one had thought that the bank, number one, was going to fail. So I think a learning lesson here is that um, you can't assume that a bank is too big to fail. You have to be in a position to have your cash as diversified as you can. And that was something that we saw uh, being pitched by like advisors and investors to their portfolios on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on emails. I had to put together an email which stated like, here are the things that you can do right now. Um, you know, get into a war room situation, review cash on hand, uh, move money, um, and so forth. It was crazy. It was literally crazy. Um, I, I, we had seen this in 2008, but 2008 was very different. Um, being in the technology startup sector, I had not really truly been affected um, by what had happened in, in the U.S. in 2008, living in Toronto. I would say that um, founders were very scared. They were very operationally not ready for what was going to take place. And um, when you review uh, kind of why did w why did Silicon Valley Bank fail, you actually see a number of operational risks that had they had solved those, they could have avoided this entire situation. So for instance, they did not have a CRO for nearly nine months, chief risk officer. That's the equivalent of like, any organization not having a chief operating officer. Um, and so when we look at Silicon Valley Bank, we look at the sector, what can founders begin to do that's realistic? So investors were saying, hey, look, you've got, you, maybe you just raised a fresh round of money or you're an established business, spread your money across three banks. Like, what is the actual reality of that actually now taking place? Like, what what would be real real pragmatic uh, solutions for CEOs, founders uh, moving forward? Well, I think you touched on it a bit. Do you think? Diver do you think that's a? Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say I think diversification is key. Um, I think I think one of the questions that that came to me through this process goes back to a question that we've talked about a little bit in some of our prior episodes, which is what are we doing as owners and CEOs of businesses in terms of our decision-making process for things that are important to the ongoing success of our business? So do we, do we do what is easy? Do we do what our, our, our friend or our trusted advisor recommends to us? What type of due diligence do we go through? Is there an evaluation process that we actually go through to assess what types of partners that we want to do business with. Um, to me, there's a lot of questions that come out of this that go beyond banking, but I think, you know, certainly from a short-term perspective, I think diversification is, is wise, but I also think the other thing that's important is to start asking questions about what is it, what is a ideal partner look like? in terms of 
your banking partner, your wealth advisor, the other key contributors to your organization. And I think one of the things that this highlights for me is that from a society perspective, we are really focused on immediate gratification. We're focused on fast and easy. And this to me is a really good reminder that there's just no shortcuts in terms of building a strong and sustainable business. And so I think that one of the things I really urge owners and CEOs to do going forward, if they have not gone through the practice of doing so is really reflecting upon those key relationships, what the composition of those relationships should look like. And one of the things I would just note, which, which I felt like was honestly a pretty good reflection of the mindset. There was a, a fairly successful founder that posted something last week where they went through and listed like the top reasons why they had banked with SVB and, and how they had recommended that if there was a bank or banks that were seeking to be a potential replacement for what the this, the place that SVB was serving in terms of the market, here's the kind of top five things. And as I read through them, and you know, having spent you know, 21 years of my career in, in banking, it I certainly read through that in a slightly different lens than 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 many people may. But what it was really about was ease and simplicity. And where my mind went as I read that was that's great from a customer perspective and understandable. But what are the trade-offs that come with that? And so was it easier to do business with SVB because it was also a reflection of some of the things that they weren't doing behind the scenes that would have required more rigor and control that would have potentially manifested the, itself in a way that customers would have felt that in the absence of the, that rigor and control, which made things easy for the customer from an optics standpoint, may have actually been the, the contribution to the problems that ended up persisting here recently that contributed to their collapse. And so to me, it goes back to trade-off decisions that we make, there usually aren't shortcuts. There's always a balancing act between the pros and the cons. And so I do think that it is really, really critical going forward to discern these things in a, in a very different way than perhaps CEOs and owners and decision makers have been um, going through in their discernment process in the past. The guidance for entrepreneurs that I gave last week was as follows. Number one, take a step back and reevaluate your forecasts. Number two, explore and exhaust other means of securing capital. Number three, become fluent in your cash burn rate. And then number four, don't be afraid to reach out to partners, backers, financial institutions, and others. Companies face no shortage of challenges in this market uh, as macroeconomic headwinds keep coming and the bank banking failures are better understood. Entrepreneurs must carefully review their business models to gauge their appropriate next steps. This is a part of an email I sent out to some of the founders that I was dealing with. So a question that we've jotted down here for today is how does the issues with banking correlate to the foundations of a strong business model? A strong banking system is essential for the overall health and stability of the economy, which in turn provides the foundation for a strong business model. A healthy banking system provides access to credit and financing for businesses, which can fuel growth and innovation. Banks also provide a range of other financial services, such as payment processing, foreign exchange, and risk management, which are critical to the functioning, functioning of the modern economy. Clearly, the question of the day is what lessons can be learned that can be applied to one's business, regardless of their size and industry. 
And I think we've touched on it a little bit, but I think certainly being more planful and thoughtful and balancing short-term and long-term thinking. You know, I think one of the things that is pretty evident too, when you think about startups and small businesses, they've had the luxury over the last several years of being able to burn cash at a slightly different rate because of the fact that the interest rate that they were paying on any money that they borrowed was so insignificant that it didn't really require always being maybe as mindful about how money was being spent, planful around the future. Everything was very focused on kind of the here and now. And so I think when you look at the shortcomings of, of SVB, to me, it mirrors short-term thinking. And we talked about this here in some of our recent episodes around the importance of the planning of a business and the importance of vision and strategy and then having a really well-balanced operational plan for your organization. And that includes not only assessing what's important in the next six, nine, 12 months, but also building a plan that is building for the future of the organization and balancing those things are incredibly critical for the sustainable success of any business. And I think this is just a harsh reminder. And while it will be easy for everyone to point explicitly at the banking industry as having the shortcoming and thought, it's really just a reflection of what's happening across industries and has been over the last several years because of the fact that many businesses have had these exceptional tailwinds because of how strong the, the economic situation has been. So we have diversify your funding sources, keep a close eye on interest rates, maintain strong relationships with, with one's bank, develop contingency plans, continue to monitor one's financial uh, health, uh, consider the impact of external factors uh, to one's business, and also, would you consider the possibility of recommending companies reassess their teams, you know, right seats, right people? Do you think that companies right now are actually doing that? Or are they just too busy putting out fires right now? I mean, case in point, if Silicon Valley had actually taken the recommendations from third parties to hire a CRO sooner than later, perhaps they would not have been in the crisis that they, that they were. No, I agree 100%. And the reality is, is that if you think about the changing economic conditions, there was no time more relevant in the last several years for Silicon Valley Bank to open their eyes and recognize the importance of having a chief risk officer because of the fact that the economic conditions were changing. It's probably the, the most important time in years and years and years for them to have done that. So to me, it, and to your question, it's just a stark reminder that we tend to let our egos get in the way and take the approach that something's not a problem until it's a problem. And the reality is, is that sometimes the problem can manifest itself in such a short term that you can't overcome the tidal wave of issues that have come, that, that have been built up over a period of time. To think that what happened with Silicon Valley Bank just happened in the last few months, I think just proves the point that poor planning and being mindful of a balanced strategy is really key to sustainable business. And so to your question, hopefully this is a reminder for businesses to go back and reflect heartily in terms of how they're organized, what their strategy is, and at the end of the day, no matter what, no matter how good your plan is or how good your strategy is, is if you don't have the right people in the right seats to execute those things, your ability to have success in the long run, is it becomes less and less likely by the day. And so, yes, I mean, my recommendation for sure would be a reevaluation of how you choose partners, a reevaluation of your operating strategy, 
a reevaluation of short-term and long-term planning. And then also as a part of that, reevaluating your organizational design and the people that you have in your organization for a full assessment of the right people in the right seats. A big part of what led to Silicon Valley Bank's collapse, some say, insiders say, is the fact that they grew too quickly. They acquired a number of banks uh, during COVID. Uh, one of the largest banks they acquired uh, was the acquisition of Boston Private Financial Holdings, uh, which was a parent company of Boston Private Bank and Trust. Um, and they combined private banking and wealth management business into their existing business model. And insiders say that they tried to diversify too quickly and they tried to take up market share of a market that they didn't really understand. What are the learning lessons in that from an operational perspective for, for founders? Well, I think a couple things for me that jump out specifically is one part of your strategy of an organization as an organization if acquisitions as a component of that is being very thoughtful and planful about exactly what the benefits of that are to your organization and then also being realistic about your strengths and weaknesses of of your existing business and your readiness to acquire a business that's differentiated from you in any form or fashion. So I think one recognizing in advance before you're making any of those types of acquisition decisions, what things might need to be shored up. But the other thing that happens quite frequently is at the point of acquisition is poor planning and poor strategy around the actual integration of those businesses. And if you, try to take the the bolt-on approach which again to me goes back to immediate gratification short-term thinking i don't think there's a lot i think that i think bolt-on is kind of overutilized. a lot of businesses say hey i just want to go do a bolt-on acquisition and very few are turnkey and so i think for this in particular is is a really harsh reminder as well that if you're going to acquire a company that you think allows you to grow in a meaningful way, there has to be a planful um, strategy around how those businesses will be integrated and a very strong operating plan put into place in order to ensure success. Given what's taken place, uh, many predict that a true recession is on the horizon. What can we offer as advice for operators out there to prepare for said recession? Well, I think certainly the reflection and assessment that we've talked about in, in today's discussion is really, really critical. I think taking a step back and doing a healthy reevaluation of the vision and strategy of the organization to ensure that it's sensible given the existing economic conditions and, and the potential for what might be coming in the future months. I think that's a really important and healthy step forward. Yeah, so it's questions to ponder about the Federal Reserve Bank after yesterday's 25 basis points increase. Who is responsible for the inflation rate we are now trying to curb? Are the tools used to determine Fed fiscal policy as outdated as the FDIC insured limits? If you admit that your model doesn't take into consideration the recent banking industry volatility, should you take any short-term action? If you say that you're, ju you're just using data, then what value does the Fed chairman add when the model is incomplete? If you say that banks like SVB were under Fed oversight, what does that say about the strength of the oversight model? If it is so obvious that SVB had poor monetary policies and controls in place, 
why didn't the Fed identify it sooner? Is the narrative that we need to increase regulatory oversight just a sign that the prior Fed practices were broken or not enforced? Has the Fed contributed in any way to the politics, greed, and power problem that continues to plague our economy and banking system? Should mixed messages from Powell and Yellen just further reinforce how broken the system is? So those were things I had in the post. So I don't know if we want to go through any of that or not, but those were like my Monday morning quarterback thoughts the day after. On March 22nd, the central bank stated it would raise interest rates by another quarter percentage point. On March 22nd, Fed Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said Wednesday, the central bank will raise interest rates by another quarter percentage point. Clint, you and I were very surprised by that. You and I were actually having a bet. I was actually stated I believe that they were, in fact, going to increase. And you stated that you were hoping that they were not going to increase. Let's unpack that further. If I'm a founder right now looking at uh, the sheer fact that the banking institutions are in our country are in dire straits, we're seeing interest rates now uh, increase after that. Was that a prudent move on the Fed's chair's part? From my perspective, no. And there, there's a few reasons why I say that. So, um, you know, my my opinion is that the Fed contributed pretty significantly to the inflationary pressure that we currently have. Correct. And the continued stimulus that was being provided, despite the fact that the economy was doing very well, even a couple few years ago, to me was not prudent at the time. And now the fact that we have been experiencing historically high inflationary pressure to me is, is, is much a much to do with monetary and fiscal decisions that were being made by the fed that they're now trying to rapidly undo. And a couple of things come to mind for me in particular. One is, is it rational to continue to make increases to interest rates in very, very short time periods and to also assume that you'll see corresponding changes in inflation at the same rate that the Fed is expecting? My personal opinion is no. And because of the fact that Powell himself stated at the press conference after the recent rate hike that they were utilizing the models and the data only to make decisions, but also admitted that there was a lack of data in the model to support the recent volatility in the banking industry to me, the prudent thing to do would be to put a pause on any interest rate changes until we can see the outcome over the next couple of weeks in terms of any other volatility in the markets. And Part of me feels like this was a decision around optics or politics and less about making a decision that was rational or responsible. And also the fact that immediately following the press conference, some inconsistencies between the prior chairperson, Janet Yellen, and the current Chairman Powell demonstrated to me a lack of confidence in terms of what the right decision was. And to me, sometimes the right decision is to not overreact 
and to hit the pause button to communicate why and then reconvene in a couple of few weeks and evaluate what's happening and then making a more prudent decision at that time. And I know going into it, you had some different thoughts in terms of what you thought might happen. I don't know if you wanted to share a little bit about your thoughts kind of going into that meeting. My legitimate expectation was that the Fed was not thinking pragmatically about the situation. I believe that it it was their actions were highly politically motivated and that they were not actually taking the medicine that they've been spooning out to the economy over the last 12 months. I was disappointed because there's a huge disconnect between the Fed and the economy right now and the average business owner. The needs and wants of the business owner are not being reflected in the products that are being provided by the institutions that are supposed to be serving them. And then more importantly, an environment for continued sustainable growth is being, in my opinion, purposely manipulated for political means. There there were some things to me that certainly stood out going into this, and I had some opinions going into it as well before the decision was rendered, as we had kind of talked about. But I think that one of the like reflective questions that I asked myself coming out of that the, the following day was, is the existing policy and practices that we have in the Fed as outdated as the FDIC insured limits? And just utilizing that as a very relative example. But the fact that it seems like we're trying to build a house with just a hammer. You know, do we only have one tool to make a decision? We go through a very, what is supposed to be a rigorous process to determine who our, who our Fed chairman is. And is that process built on political alignment or is it built on someone who can bring a new and modern way of thinking and tools to the, to the process to evolve with what we're seeing in terms of the changing economic landscape. And to me, those are questions that are important questions to ask. I would say though, as well, that I am not as concerned maybe as most in terms of the overall strength of the banking industry. And the reason that I say that is that I do think where you have the most concentrated risk, which would be in the big, the, in, in terms of deposits and impact to the overall um, industry in its totality, is that the biggest of the banks have been under so much significant scrutiny over the last 15 years. That scrutiny and oversight was not implemented at some of these other banks. And I think that the outcomes of that are reflected um, very clearly in terms of some of the broken policies and processes that were in place at SVB, for example. But when you look at the biggest of the banks between the OCC, the Federal Reserve, the CFPB, the the number of layers of risks and control, risk and uh, control oversight that those organizations have is significant. And so my confidence level is high in terms of the overall health of those organizations where, where my confidence is lower is in the banking institutions that were not required to do that and have, at least in my opinion, some of which 
have been irresponsible over the last several years in terms of taking advantage of the lack of oversight that existed for them and didn't put in the types of controls necessary to be mindful of the fact that the economic landscape could and likely would change at some point. And so to me, comparing SVB to JP Morgan Chase, for example, is is a is an extremely poor comparison. I was stunned at the fact that this interest rate risk, the vulnerability existed two years ago, three years ago. So I'm stunned that financial supervisors and regulators didn't induce the bank to hedge its interest rate risk. It's not rocket science. This is basically banking kind of 101, right? So, however, it is fair to say that nobody was nobody was mandated to do enhanced supervision and regulation and stress testing of this bank. But one could say that the CHED, uh, the CHED, geez, look at that, eh? Combination of things here. One can state, though, that the chair and the Fed and the chair of the FDIC need to explain when, what went wrong. A hundred percent. And I think the reason why we didn't get a clear and fair answer on that is that the reality is that some of the accountability lies at the feet of the Fed. And because of the recent volatility and the impact of the markets that have happened over the last couple of weeks, while the responsible thing to do would have been to admit some level of weakness in terms of the oversight that was in place, I think there was a prudent, what was believed to be a prudent choice to omit that from the remarks with likely concerns of what the impact to the markets might be. But again, I, I, I do wanted to con, kind of continue to state that while I believe the Fed has a lot of responsibility for the economic situation that we're in, I do believe that the largest of the banking institutions are well positioned. And I also believe that the outcome of this is going to likely be more significant oversight at institutions of smaller sizes, which is, is now proved to be necessary. And I also believe that this likely is going to change the way that small businesses and startups fund their businesses and the types of fiscal policies that they put, they may have to put into place going forward. I mean, what, again, to me, one of the things that is like semi-comical about all this is in back to the idea that we are so focused on in myopic in terms of like what's happening right in front of us the fact that people are concerned about where interest rates are right now, if you think about it in terms of like historical perspective, they're still incredibly reasonable, but everyone is, is just completely overwhelmed with the idea of interest rates being worth it where, where they are right now. And some of it certainly is the speed at which it changed, which many were not well positioned for. Mm -hmm. But to build models and plan your business to assume that you're going to stay at historical lows for 5, 10, 15 years, I would argue is pretty foolish and irresponsible and a reflection of the fact that I think that many businesses are very, very micro-focused on 
a handful of things and not necessarily looking at their business holistically and with a with a balance towards not just the short term but also towards the future. And some and some of that as you know Jason is is in some cases out of necessity for businesses that are bootstrapped or potentially not doing particularly well, but at some point you can't continue to operate your business, especially when you grow and you're making big revenues. You can't continue with the bootstrapping. Correct. Mentality. Mentality forever. Yeah. Correct. And it's uh, each business is dynamic depending on what stage it is And the financial products that these large institutions provide are, are there for a reason. They are required. If you are actually growing a business, you want to continue to invest in your business. How you invest into that business is just dependent on your risk profile, uh, what your business goals are, and so forth. On March 24th, a paper was released entitled Monetary Tightening in U.S. Bank Fragility in 2023, Mark to Market Losses on Uninsured Deposit Runs. The study revised... Uh, the banking system in a whole based on the current situation. They calculated that looking only at the losses associated with long-term assets dropping in value because of the interest rate increases during the last year, the losses in the U.S. banking system are about $2 trillion. We don't know how much of that loss is hedged. The concern I have still is not so much on the institutions themselves. Again, like you stated, I believe that the larger institutions like JP Morgan um, are set up for success. They have been through the appropriate uh, models with their CROs. They actually have CROs and they understand their client base. What I am concerned about is the fact that Just like in the 2008 crisis, the themes were building for years ahead of time. It was not an unforeseeable flood. So the question is to the Federal Reserve and their ability to effectively supervise and regulate banks. And what's going on with Silicon Valley Bank right now seems like just another example of that question of whether or not they have the right team, right operational plan, right mission to continue to support the banking system as a whole. So we asked the question, why did everyone fail to predict Silicon Valley Bank's collapse? A recent CNN article stated the following. Number one, breakneck breakneck growth. The bank was quickly um, growing. There were red flags everywhere. Um, because the management's capacity and the bank's compliance system seldom grew at the pace of the rest of their business, the the breakneck growth essentially broke them. So let's just quickly unpack that. So the manager's capacity and the bank's compliance systems seldom grew at the pace of the rest of the business. So again, lessons for our founders out there is forecasting is an important part of growth. And a lot of the time when I walk into some of these businesses, I find that they don't have a proper controller or CFO. It goes back to your comment earlier in this podcast, which is around who's advising you. If you are looking at the current economic situation right now, and you may not be well-versed, and the first thing I say to you is get well-versed, you have the responsibility. No one's going to, you know, no one's going to help you grow your business. You have to take responsibility for um, the current markets and get educated on on how the market works. These are this is a more sophisticated market than it's ever been, and it's really up to the founder, the CEO, um, you as a as a employee to go out there and learn more about how does the economy work. The second thing I'll say is that you need to continue to evaluate who you're doing business with. I mean, we, you've said it earlier, Clint, in the conversation, but I think it's worth asking and pointing out again. We have too many people that are in the market right now 
who don't have the expertise that's required, even though they're marketing themselves with the expertise. And there are too many founders, CEOs, managers out there that are getting bamboozled by these individuals and not actually taking the appropriate due diligence to ask themselves, like, does this person have the experience that's needed for me to help me with my business right now? Does the person that's in the role of, say, CFO or COO uh, or controller, is that the right person for the job moving forward? No, I think all those things are important. I think your point around being grounded and educated, self-educated is really important. I also think that with that being said, that in fairness, that we 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 oftentimes don't know what we don't know. And so even the function of going out and getting educated, where do you start? What are the things that are important? Making sure that you recognize fact from fiction in terms of the content that you're 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 getting and the accuracy of that. Who who is your trusted advisor circle and who are the people that you're typically relying on for guidance and recommendations? Um, are you someone who's willing to hear things that do not align with your idea? And so, for instance, is part of the challenge in a small business as they're growing, is it a is it just a function of strategy? in organizational design and right people, right seats, or is it also a function of the leader's willingness to hear the things that are coming to them from the people that they have put in those seats to make key decisions? All of these things to me are critical to the ongoing success of a business. And so one leader, edu get educated. Two, how are you assessing your trusted advisors? Three, are you seeking out people who are only yes people? Or are you seeking out people who will provide constructive feedback in op opposing positions? And I think the other part of this too is that how frequently are you reevaluating these things? Because of the fact that in particular right now, but again, it, it to me, it's a, it, it is a good practice to get in place to probably at least twice a year take a fresh evaluation of what's happening in your business, what your business strategy is and making sure that you have the right organizational design and the right people in the right seats and being willing to make the very difficult decisions that may be necessary for the ongoing health and success of your business. Because if, if you're just doing it on some type of annualized schedule or only when there's a problem, then you're putting yourself at substantial risk. I'd say to listeners, another important take action point is to sit down and spend some time with your CFO, your controller, and review the KPIs that you've set out for how your executive team looks at the company. So again, having an executive KPI dashboard reviewing your finance KPI dashboard, reviewing your operations KPI dashboard. If you can't answer right now what your cash conversion cycle is, if you can't answer what your debt to equity ratio is right now, if you don't know how much work, what your working capital ratio is, you're probably in some trouble right now. So again, getting back to basics, getting back to operational readiness, focusing on KPIs, understanding where, where your exposure to these interest rate hikes lie. If you happen to have a line of credit, do you know what the terms are for that line of credit? Right, Clint? I think it just goes back to just let's get back to basics again. Let's get back to knowing our business. Let's get back to understanding the finer details in the documents that we've signed when money was just free flowing. Well, yeah. And I think I think you kind of touched on this as well is how do you how do you define metrics that matter in your business? And I, I know that there is a lot of philosophies around too much, you know, 
having too much data can sometimes paralyze an organization. Sometimes you have metrics for the sake of having metrics and then no one really understands what Good they're saying. Any metrics. Yep. And so, so the reality of that is true. And I think that it is important to acknowledge and recognize this, but having metrics that matter is super important to the ongoing sustainability and success of a business. The financial components are a part of that. Top line revenue growth is important, but one of the things we always talk about, are you only focused on top line revenue growth or are you also looking at profitability? But one of the things that you kind of hit on, which I think is really important for any business to reflect upon is what are the measurements that you need to have in place that would identify potential risk to your business? Now, every industry is a little bit different. Every business is set up a little bit differently. So you have to ask those questions. But for instance, if you were going, if you started to have significant churn in your portfolio, how do you measure that? And how quickly will you, would you be able to identify that? Do you have the risk for losses in your business? And how would you identify that those things are outside of a particular tolerance that you've set that you believe to be acceptable given your industry? I think that having probably a step back conversation on metrics that matter right now and not just focusing on, to your point, vanity metrics and the things that you like to at a at a industry party talk about or brag about in social media, what are the fundamental metrics that you need to have in your business to really understand what your organizational health is? You know, are you having those, those conversations within your team? And do you have confidence that you have the measurements in place that can predict well in advance growing risk to your business? And if you don't, I'd recommend that you give some energy towards that in the relative short term. 100%. Reevaluate your practices. Um, we're in a really dynamic environment from a cash perspective. Make sure that you have your cash diversified, deposits diversified. Spend some time taking a step back as we move into the end of quarter one, we're preparing for quarter two. And I have sent out a note to all the organizations I work with right now. Now's the time to have that quarterly planning session. Take a step out of the business. Spend some time with your management teams. Listen to our podcast. And uh, prepare for the future. With that, listeners, thanks for listening. I'm Jason Carvello. And I'm Clint Overton. We'll see you next time.